Psalm 45 might have struck you as an odd one. It's got little to do with God at first glance, only briefly mentioning him in verse 7. But other than that, it's a love song between the king and his bride-to-be. So how are we to take that into our own prayer life? Well, early interpreters also struggled with the same question. After the Babylonian exile, the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Babylonian language, Aramaic, and they were called Targums. And with this new translation also came some commentary on how they were to be understood. The Targum on Psalm 45 comments that this song should be about the Messiah. And they're not wrong. The writer of Hebrews quotes verse 6 and 7 in Hebrews chapter 1 verses 8 and 9. And many Christians have continued to understood this psalm as addressed to Christ and his bride, the church. Scripture provides plenty of times when God has explained his relationship with his people as that of a marriage, and the metaphors continued from Old into the New Testament. The plan for us today is to talk about that messianic interpretation, but also to see what potential value this psalm would have had for those who lived centuries before Jesus. The first eight verses revolve around the king. He's described as the kind of guy you'd want to be king. He's beautiful, blessed by God, mighty, majestic, just, and merciful. He's a protector of his people, and he conquers their enemies. God's throne is forever, and we're glad to have someone like this king sitting on it, because there's nobody else like him. The queen-to-be, in verses 10 through 17, is a fitting companion. She's decked out in gold, lavished with gifts from the rich city of Tyre, and promised to be the mother of many princes who will rule throughout the earth. Now, this psalm is an endorsement of the Israelite king. These were the virtues and behaviors that he was to embody. He was to lead his people in battle against the enemy and to judge righteously in his nation. The riches of a great king wouldn't be from oppression or selfish hoarding, but because he had led the nation into great blessings and enabled everyone to prosper. And this prosperity is to be understood in light of verses 6 and 7. God himself has chosen this man to rule over his people. Behind every praiseworthy action of the king is the God who put him there. But we, as Christians, have no king but Jesus. The writer of Hebrews understood verses 6 and 7 as a description of Jesus. If you keep verses 6 and 7 in mind for a moment, you'll notice that the line is blurred between God and king. Verse 6 addresses the king as God, and in verse 7 we have the king being anointed by God. Ancient Near Eastern empires liked to refer to their kings as gods plenty of times, but with Jesus, we can take that understanding to a whole new level. He is the eternal king, and God who is established forever and ever, fighting against the enemy for his people and loving righteousness. And if Jesus is the king, that leaves many people seeing the church as his bride, just as Paul does in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and 27. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And so, when we look at the description of the queen, we would do well to keep Psalm 45, 10 through 11 in mind. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow down to him. Like Abraham before us, we're to leave our people behind, leave our father's house, and cling to Christ. He is our Lord now, and a perfect one at that. So bow to him, knowing that he is going to lead you home in splendor.